Well, as we uh, continue on in our study, um, we're, we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks, as we kind of started last week, um, looking at some actual people. And I think that whenever you go into the annals of history and you start, let's see, wrong one here, get this set. You start thinking about um, different key figures, uh, especially in the context of church history. Um, you start looking at key figures, key leaders, and what they contributed, what they accomplished. Um, it's really, I think, sort of common for us to kind of focus on seminal moments, um, maybe significant um, works of written literature, of doctrinal treatises, maybe certain uh, events where they spoke, they were prominently featured in terms of them speaking or taking a stand of some sort. But I also think it's helpful and important um, and even really very encouraging to take a look at some of these figures and really try to get a more full-orbed view of who they were and what their overall um, ministry and doctrinal and standing for the faith kind of contributions were uh, to the church that have ramifications and impact for us even today. And uh, so we're going to be doing that over the next few weeks. But I want to kind of go back a little bit and then work our way forward to kind of give us kind of refresh our minds around what's going on during the time window that we're kind of looking at. Um, we've, we've kind of journeyed through uh, the period of time where the, the church finds itself transitioning from an entity under the weight and burden of imperial persecution as the norm to a church that is now under the glow or the benefits from a, particularly from a, a worldly perspective, of the Constantinian rule where Christianity was not only allowed but became favored in the empire. So the church go, undergoes this tremendously significant shift in terms of its own sense of identity in the culture, its own place of prominence and influence in society, and not just in common society, but in governing society, in, in influence in the imperial court even, and the clergy being elevated to posts that were on par with those in high levels of government leadership. So this is a massive paradigm shift for the church as an institution, but also for the, the believers in the church. Um, there was a whole range of, obviously, benefits to that. There's a whole um, series of burdens of life that were lifted. And then, of course, as is always the case, there was a whole range of problems that ensued as a result of that. There was a whole range of difficulties and, and disruptions to sound teaching and, and erroneous uh, theology entering in and these kinds of things. But nevertheless... You can imagine that during this time where the church is under the protection even and the, the actual um, sort of benefit of the, the empire, that it's a time also where um, theological discussion and debate can actually flourish and, and theological writings can flourish. And so this is the time where you have this emergence in a pretty unique way during the 4th and 5th century of some significant contributors to 
uh, Christian teaching, Christian doctrine, some seminal events, uh, some of which we've talked about, we'll review again. But I want to kind of remind us of this, this journey with just a few brief um, highlights and some dates to kind of get us sort of back into the track of how this sort of played out. Just taking you back to 312 AD, you recall that Constantine, prior to him taking his place as emperor, he, he had a vision. Uh, he was on his way to, to sort of take hold of Rome and seize control uh, of the western part of the Roman Empire uh, facing Maxentius, Maxentius, who was the, the emperor of the western part of the empire at that time. Constantine had this, this vision and this dream that he believes was from God, from Christ and from God, from the Christian God, if you will, um, that basically, uh, you know, he saw, he saw the, the sign of the cross in the light of heaven. It was above the sun and it bared this inscription, by this symbol you will conquer. And he knew that he needed something more powerful than what the pagan gods were providing to be able to conquer in the way that he knew he needed to conquer. And he believed that this was, this was the answer. He also had a dream uh, that followed this vision. This was a daytime vision, as it's recounted. And then he has a dream that night that Eusebius, the historian who was an adoring fan of Constantine and a contemporary, Eusebius says this, In his sleep, the Christ of God appeared to him with the same sign which he had seen in the heavens, and commanded him to make a likeness of that sign which he had seen in the heavens and to use it as a safeguard in all engagements with his enemies. So you have Constantine now taking on the sign and symbol of the chi in the row, which is, looks like an R, this, and which is, an indica- which is a, a symbol of Christ, putting it on shields and on banners. It's sort of like the, the banner under which now his armies are marching. And of course, in 312, he meets... Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge and roundly defeats him and is able to take Rome and, um, and take power over the entire western part of the Roman Empire. Um, he was obviously impacted by this victory and felt like it was a benediction of God. And, and so his, his interest in Christianity grew from that where he actually did seek out teaching and instruction in Christianity. But we, we've talked about this before. For Constantine, it was a, a, a sort of a difficult-to-discern mixture of political ruling motivation and elements of sincere interest in Christian faith. And it's hard to discern you know, where his heart really was in the matter by what we understand and read from history. Um, we do know that he was very friendly to Christians, and overtly so, and, and, and tried to adopt a Christian empire kind of manner of ruling. ruling. Um, this really started in some ways, in a profound way, I should say, with the Edict at Milan in 313, that he reached this agreement with the Eastern Emperor uh, Licinius, this Edict of Milan, which basically they pronounced sort of religious freedom and religious tolerance, but they also this edict also uh, returned property that was uh, taken from Christians. It, would, it allowed the uh, organization of churches, um, and it granted people freedom of worship. So that was a major, major shift in, in the empire for believers. Uh, eventually, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of fast-forwarding to 324. This is the point at which... Um, 
Constantine attacked Licinius and roundly defeated him and became the sole emperor of the entire Roman Empire. So from this point of 312, where he becomes the, the ruler of the entire western part of the empire, and then this edict at Milan that really changes the whole landscape in the empire for believers, to now uh, Constantine, the one who is pressing for this religious freedom and even this favor granted to the Christian religion and the banner under which his military is now fighting, he becomes the sole emperor in 324 of the entire Roman Empire. Well, uh, uh, within a year, he's having to now deal with religious controversy. And you recall in 325, he called the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and really he, he, he gathered together over 300 bishops from throughout the empire. It was the first official sort of uh, council, religious theological council uh, in, in the church's history aside from the Acts 15 uh, Jerusalem council. I mean, this was like a, a sort of a reinvigoration of what the religious um, People would look back in Acts and say, this is, a, this is a similar kind of an event. This is a seminal event. That would not have taken place under this Roman persecution sort of paradigm. But now they're having this council to deal with this growing controversy that we know as Arianism, but was really this belief, this, this, uh, this doctrine that was um, written about, promoted, promulgated by Arius, who was a priest in Alexandria. He wasn't a bishop. He was a priest in Alexandria. And it was basically, it went at the core of who Jesus Christ is in his essence. It went at the core of of what we call Christology. Arius believed that Jesus Christ was begotten of God. Therefore, he was created at some point in time. Therefore, he was not eternal. And therefore, he was also subordinate to God the Father, not just subordinate in the way that we understand Jesus' submission to the will of the Father in his humanity, but in his very essence, in totality, he was subordinate to God the Father. Because, of course, God the Father is eternal, is uncreated, is sovereign and all-powerful. So if you've begot a son who was created in a point in time and is not eternal, there's automatically an, an, an essential subordination there. That was sort of the Arian belief, and it became this point of great tension that centered there in Alexandria with the bishop Alexander, uh, aptly named, between him and Arius. And uh, it basically rose to the level of a concern of political magnitude, because the tension and the heat from this was beginning to flare. And so you have um, another bishop in Nicomedia, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who is of an Arian slant, and you have Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, another major city in the empire, and they're at odds with one another. And so Constantine is now concerned about the tension that that could raise that could be, become uh, violent in nature. I mean, that's, that's the direction that this was headed. So he calls this council to deal with this. As a result of this council, this Arian heresy about the the nature of Christ, the deity of Christ, the eternality of Christ, was addressed thoroughly. It was roundly rejected. Uh, over Only two of the bishops refused to sign what came out of that, as we know as the Nicene Creed, which clearly and definitively stated the eternality of, God, of Christ, 
co-equal with the Father. The, the nature of the Trinity was also stated in that. The, this term or this phrase, of one substance, the Father and the Son being of one substance, was sort of the key term, the defining term in the Nicene Creed to sort of reject these, this Arian belief. So this was the result of the Council of Nicaea in 8325. Now, I say all that to say you would hope and think that that kind of settled the matter. But not even close did it settle the matter. In fact, even though this major, major doctrinal dispute that really goes at the heart of the gospel, and if you think about it, how do you deal with the nature of the atonement? If you have a begotten son who is not eternal, how does, how does that substitutionary atonement doctrine really effectually work? I mean, there's all kinds of gospel-centric concerns. How do you relate to this begotten son? Obviously, we know that in, in our day and time, that, this is, that, the, that the Aryan view of Christ as being begotten of the Father manifests itself in other cults, right? So, some of them may have come to your door and wanted to talk to you at different points in time, right? So, this is not some small uh, sort of dispute, sort of intramural dispute. This was a major controversy, and, and it was definitively settled on paper. You, you read the Nicene Creed, which we've read a couple of times here over the last several weeks. I mean, it is absolutely clear and definitive, and even repetitive in its statements about the very eternal nature of Christ as being one with the Father and being fully God. So you would think that that would settle the matter. Of course, it didn't. In fact, Arianism persisted in the empire for at least another 50 years. You could even say that it was a matter of major dispute all the way up until the next major council, the council at Constantinople in 8381. So 8325, you have the Council of Nicaea, a definitive statement rebuking Arianism, and then you have all the way to AD 381, the Council of Constantinople, before this thing is really, but basically the Nicene Council and the Nicene Doctrine is reaffirmed at that point. So you have this period of long time where, um, where this particular controversy, this particular heresy, was plaguing the church in significant ways. Now, why, why do you think that would be the case? You want to take a shot? How, how could this happen? Any students of history? Okay. So there's a there's a there's a uh, anthropological and and spiritual realm kind of answer. Man's flesh and the works of the enemy are manifesting themselves all the time throughout every epoch of history. Any other thoughts? Let me let me read to you from Christopher Hall. Uh, someone who's a, a writer of, 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 of uh, focusing on history, church history. So, so, so Constantine, remember, presided. He called the council and presided over it. He was the one that gave the opening remarks and, and basically called the bishops to settle this matter definitively. And so they did. And they wrote a definitive doctrinal, doctrin, doctrinal statement about it. Not creating a doctrine of Christology, but just affirming and reaffirming what the scriptures teach about who Christ is. But here's what Christopher Hall says about this. 
this, this fact that this was not settling the issue at all. The Roman emperors were an important influence. A series of emperors, beginning with Constantine, understood their role to include the right to intervene in the affairs of the church, particularly when the division within the church threatened the unity of the Roman Empire itself. Thus, if a Roman emperor was disposed favorably toward Arian ideas, as Constantius, one of Constantine's sons, and Valens, subsequent to Constantius, were, bishops supporting the creed formulated at Nicaea could be severely punished, most often by being deposed or exiled. If an emperor favoring Nicaea was in power, Arian believers would suffer. So now what you have is you have Christology as a foundational doctrine revealed to us authoritatively in Scripture as a political ping-pong ball in the Roman Empire. And it hit back and forth on the table. Now, Constantius was, was the main emperor after Constantine who had Arian leanings and who reigned for about 40 years and, and basically influenced the whole nature of the debate by deposing those who would, who would affirm the Nicene Creed and uh, adopting the, the eternality of Christ um, and, and deposing these, these church leaders and putting in place those who would view a Christ as begotten of the Father and created at a point in time in this whole Arian heresy. So even after the Council of Nicaea in 8325, the emperors that would come into play, depending upon where their leanings went, that's where the church ultimately went, because the church had become a political entity by every account. And the influence of the emperor sort of made that so. Soon after the Council of Nicaea, uh, constantly, or let me before before we even talk about that, er, er, as I said, depending upon who was in power, believe, you know the believers would suffer accordingly. Arian leaning people versus Nicene leaning people, depending upon who was in power. Yes, the bishops of the church continued to play the major role in interpreting scripture and constructing theology based upon biblical exegesis. Yet behind the bishops, the presbyt- and the presbyters during and after the Council of Nicaea stood a series of Christian Roman emperors more than willing to intervene in the church's affairs and doctrine. When a series of pro-Arian emperors arrived on the scene, Arianism spread like wildfire. So after the Council of Nicaea, not only does Arian maintain, Arianism maintain sort of this nagging, gnat-like problem, it spreads. It becomes influential and powerful in the life of the church. So imagine a church that... No, no longer believes in the full deity and eternality of Christ. And that's what was going on for near 50 years in the church, in the church's history. So you can imagine those who were adherents and believers in the truth of Scripture understood what Scripture taught about the nature and essence of Christ. This was no small matter for them. And those who were faithful spoke up, took stands, wrote, stood in the gap. And that's what happened. Even Constantine, after him holding this council, 
sort of shifts the other way. Soon after the Council of Nicaea, Constantine began to listen to Arian sympathizers. He even reinstated Eusebius of Nicomedia, the influential bishop who was the ally of Arius. He also removed some pro-Nicene bishops. So this didn't just start with Constantius, his son. This actually started with Constantine. After Constantine's death in 337, his sons took over the empire. Three of his sons took over the empire. And as I said, Constantius, who ruled the eastern portion of the empire initially, and even eventually became the sole emperor of the entire empire, favored Arianism. And so between about 340 and 361, about 21 years, um, that was the prevailing position of the empire and the church, this, this imperial church. So imagine the church not believing in the eternal, eternality of Christ and having a totally aberrant Trinitarian view or understanding of the triune nature of God. But that's what held the seats of power in the empire. Now last week, we talked about Ambrose of Milan. And Ambrose uh, was this governor in Milan who, by popular demand, if you recall, was appointed the bishop of Milan after the death of the prior bishop. He wasn't, it wasn't on his radar and it wasn't his ambition. He was not a clergyman by work or by experience, but, but he was a, a beloved and popular uh, government official. There was tension in Milan, again, over this Arian versus Nicene view of Christ. And who to put into the position of the bishopric was exposed as a point of tremendous tension it was a battlefront now. So uh, Ambrose, as the governor, decides he needs to get involved in this as a, as a civil governmental matter. And of course, he is, there, there's, there's these cries for him to, to be appointed as bishop, and he reluctantly does. We talked about that last week. He redu- reluctantly takes this position as the bishop of Milan. The fact of the matter, though, is that he was... Uh, a Nicene believer. He believed in the deity of Christ. He believed in the triune nature of God. And he further developed this Trinitarian doctrine. Um, he, he emphasized the centrality of the incarnation of Christ in Christian belief. But one of the things that he was most noted for, and you can kind of get the sense of this for him, from him as being someone who was coming out of being a government, uh, an effective, popular uh, governing official, now in the ecclesiastical realm, uh, he basically stood up to the powers that be and, and sort of lobbied for, argued for, and fought for an independence of the church from the rule and, and overreach of the government. That was one of his main sort of thrusts and contributions to the church. He strongly advocated that the church, in order to fulfill its mission, had to be free and independent of government influence. Had to be. And of course, it's pretty obvious at this point. The governing rulers of the day were using religious influence and religious fervor as political instruments, as political leverage points. And that was obvious. And so so Ambrose was passionate about the mission of the church now. And he, he advocated for this this independent church, this, this, this mission that the church had, had to be independent from the whims of any ruling authority. 
that would change over time. This is a transcendent, eternal mission given by God himself that had to be fulfilled as God desired without being subject to changing political dynamics. So a major influence and a major key uh, element here that had to come to be for the church to be doctrinally sound and sustain a doctrinally sound position. We briefly talked last week about John Chrysostom, um, this, this uh, very gifted preacher and orator. Um, he was the bishop of Constantinople for six years, uh, after six years of being a monk. And his big contribution was that he confronted the material excesses of the church, both the clergy, of the emperors, of the people, Again, in this environment in which the church is living the the lux life of the Roman imperial court. And John Chrysostom, coming out of a monastic way, a monastic life, confronted that head-on as gross excess for God's people. But before these two, and I kind of skipped over this one person, we need to come back to him, because his work is extremely significant. His life and his work is extremely significant and pivotal in terms of the timing of it. And that's Athanasius. So Athanasius was before, shortly before Ambrose and Chrysostom. Just to give you some context for him, in 319, uh, Athanasius is around 20 years old, and we know that he was serving as the secretary for Alexander, the bishop of Alexandria, who was at the central point of this Arian controversy with Arius. So Athanasius is serving alongside Alexander as a secretary at this point in time when Arius sends his letter to Alexander with this doctrinal heresy promoting it. So you have Athanasius witnessing all these events as they're unfolding as the secretary of Alexander. Now what we're, what we're going to see in Athanasius is someone who embodies what we read about in Jude chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, which says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in. This is the key in Jude, and it's really the key in almost every passage of Scripture that addresses the threat of false teaching. It's not focusing on threats that are constantly coming from the outside. It always goes to these threats that, that creep in. They're among you, and like leaven, their influence organically grows. So this is what you have going on in the life of the church now. The problems that the church are facing are not external threats. In fact, if you go back to the time before Constantine, before the Edict of Milan, and you look at the church under consistent threat of persecution, the church's soundness of doctrine and its thriving evangelistic mission is unmistakable. And the church's dangers were always the dangers that were pointed out in the New Testament. They're dangers that come from within. When believers are not on guard and are not contending for the faith. 
that was once delivered. For certain people have crept in, Jude says, unnoticed, who long ago were designed or designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So the nature of the nature of false teaching that often creeps into the church has a profile of leading the church toward worldly excess and sensuality, the seeking of gratification of worldly, earthly, temporal desires, and it seeks to undermine the authority, the person, the nature, the essence of Christ. And that's what was going on in the Arian controversy. That's the environment, that's the context that you see in this post-Constantinian world, in the life of the church. Athanasius gives us a great window into how one should contend for the faith. And this, this concept of contending for the faith, or contention, kind of carries with it a natural assumption of contentiousness, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't, isn't it easy for our minds to go in that direction when we think about contending for the faith, fighting for the faith, struggling for the faith? It's easy for our hearts and our minds to move to a place of thinking about contentiousness. Or even if we're not consciously thinking like that, that is emotionally where we often end up when we are contending for the faith, right? Is it not true that many, many believers... Maybe you included, and I know I'm included in this, that in our, in our efforts to passionately and convincingly contend for the faith, we can do it in a contentious way. And those are not the same exhortations here. Jude is not encouraging believers to be contentious about the faith. So that's why I say, looking at people who demonstrate this is really, really helpful. And Athanasius is a good example of that. And in a, in a day and a time where you literally had to contend for it, in his position, in his role, he was constantly having to contend for the faith against a heresy that completely undermined really the Godhead and the the essence of who Christ was as part of the Godhead. So Athanasius, in 325, accompanies Alexander to the Council of Nicaea. Many believe that Athanasius probably had some hand in the, in the drafting of the Nicene Creed. No, no, no explicit reference that he wrote it or anything like that, although some historians like to speculate toward that end. Probably based upon how he took up that mantle after Alexander's death and, and took up that, that focus um, in a lot of his writings, it, it might give you some indication that that could be the case. But all we can say is that he was there. He was a trusted advisor and secretary to Alexander. Alexander was at the forefront. He was, on, he was at the head of the spear in this battle. And so Athanasius certainly had some hand, some influence, some interaction around the drafting of the Nicene Creed in AD in AD 328, he was appointed bishop after Alexander's death. He was appointed bishop of Alexandria. Again, Alexandria, very influential city, very influential region uh, in the empire. And um, 
And he was one who, as I said, was very committed to contending faithfully for the faith. Listen to what John Piper says in his little biographical sketch of Athanasius. Most of the bishops who had signed the Creed of Nicaea did not like calling people heretics, even if they disagreed with the basic affirmation of Christ's deity. They wanted to get rid of Athanasius and his passion for this cause. So right, out of the, right at the jump, there's, there's wobbling on conviction about this doctrine amongst the bishops. And just because Athanasius is wanting to call it heresy, he is in unfriendly territory as the bishop of Alexandria. They wanted to get rid of Athanasius and his passion for this cause. Athanasius was accused of levying illegal taxes. And this is the extent, this is how politicized the clergy was in Athanasius' day. They wanted to get rid of Athanasius and his passion for the cause. Athanasius was accused of levying illegal taxes. There were accusations that he was too young when ordained, that he used magic, that he subsidized treasonable persons, and more. Constantine did not like Athanasius' hard line either and called him to Rome in 331 to face the charges the bishops were bringing. The facts acquitted him, but his defense of the Nicene formulation of Christ's deity was increasingly in the minority. Now, this is how far this went. Finally, his enemies resorted to intrigue. Now, these are bishops, okay? They bribed Arsenius, a bishop of Hypsale on the Nile in southern (coughs) Egypt, to disappear so that the rumor could be started that Athanasius had arranged his murder and cut off one of his hands to use for magic. Okay? Now, when, when Piper uses the term intrigue, it's almost cartoonish intrigue, right? It's, it's crazy. This really gets good, though. Listen to this. So they think that they, they're trying to... They bribe this guy, Arsenius, who was also a bishop, to disappear. And, of course, they accuse uh, Athanasius of murdering him and cutting off his hand to use for magic. Constantine was told and asked for a trial to be held in Tyre. Meanwhile, one of Athanasius' trusted deacons had found Arsenius hiding in a monastery and had taken him captive, captive and brought him secretly to Tyre. Here's what happened. <laughs> At the trial, the accusers produced a human hand to confirm the indictment. I feel bad for the person whose hand was used for this. But Athanasius was ready. Did you know Arsenius personally, he asked? Yes, was the eager reply from many sides. So Arsenius was ushered in alive, wrapped in a cloak. When he was revealed to them, they were surprised, but demanded an explanation of how he had lost his hand. These guys are committed to this lie. (laughs) Athanasius turned up his cloak and showed that one hand at least was there. There was a moment of suspense, artfully managed by Athanasius. Then the other hand was exposed, and the accusers were requested to point out whence the third hand had been cut off. (laughs) So Athanasius, mocking them, said, must have been a third hand that I cut off. Yeah. As clear as this seemed, Athanasius was condemned at this council and fled in a boat with four bishops and came to Constantinople. So he was still condemned. The accusers threw aside the Arsenius indictment 
and created another one with false witnesses. Athanasius had tried to starve Constantine's capital by preventing, what, by preventing wheat shipments from Alexandria. That was the indictment. That was too much for Constantine, and even without condemning evidence, he ordered Athanasius banished to uh, Treverie. And Athanasius left for exile on February 8, 336. So this is basically how Athanasius' role as bishop of Alexandria kind of got started. This is two years after he assumed the post. And this is the environment that he's serving in, where there's intrigue and there's such commitment to this doctrine. Let's just think about this. Charlie kind of pointed out sort of the spiritual nature of this kind of thing. To believe and invest your heart and soul and conviction into false doctrine and to call it true does not remain isolated as an intellectual matter. It manifests itself in other aspects of your life, so much so that you will lie, that you will commit intrigue, that you will falsely accuse, whatever it takes. In other words, this is just one more example of how sin is not done in isolation ever with us. And especially this kind of heretical posture. You can't hold on to this kind of stuff and it not affect every other area of your life and your judgment. So to minimize these things and not contend for the faith is a gross miscalculation. This was the first of five exiles for Athanasius. He was exiled five different times from his post. Again, from Piper. Athanasius was driven out of his church and office five times by the power of the Roman Empire. Seventeen of his 45 years as bishop were spent in exile. But the people never acknowledged the validity of the other bishops sent to take his place. He was always bishop in exile as far as his flock was concerned. This is a man with deep doctrinal convictions and a bright, very bright theological mind and a powerful pen. He was unwavering in his convictions, even in the face of the most powerful opponents in the empire. But he was also, so, so you get this picture of Athanasius as this spiritual giant, this kind of a warrior fighting for the truth, contending earnestly for the faith. But the power of his testimony of life is what really was moving. Remember, he was in exile five times, and 17 of his 45 years as bishop, he was in exile. But the people always regarded him as the bishop. Now, why is that? What is that about? Well, again, he was beloved and a humble servant. So he wasn't just this fighting, contentious warrior writing these polemical doctrinal treatises, lashing out against the Arian heresy. He was a servant of people. He was a true lover of people under his charge. So from Piper again, Gregory of Nazanius, excuse me, Nazianzus, I can't even pronounce that. You see the spelling of this. Um, gave a memorial sermon in Constantinople seven years after the death of Athanasius and described the affections of the Egyptian people for their bishop. 
Gregory tells us that when Athanasius returned from his third exile in 364, having been gone for six years, he arrived, quote, this is Gregory quoting, amid such delight of the people of the city and of almost all Egypt that they ran together from every side from the furthest limits of the country simply to hear the voice of Athanasius or feast their eyes upon the sight of him. From their standpoint, none of the foreign appointments to the office of Bishop of Alexandria for 45 years was valid but one, and that's Athanasius. This devotion was owing to the kind of man Athanasius was. Gregory remembered him like this, quote, Let one praise him in his fastings and prayers. Another, his unweariedness and zeal for vigils and psalmody. Another, his patronage of the needy. Another, his dauntlessness toward the powerful, or his condescension to the lowly. He was to the unfortunate their consolation. Youths, their instructor. The poor, their resource. The wealthy, their steward. Even the widows will praise their protector. Even the orphans, their father. Even the poor, their benefactor. Strangers, their entertainer. Brethren, the man of brotherly love, the sick, their physician. So this is a man who was real through and through. A genuine servant of Christ who emulated the heart and life of Christ to his people. When we are contending for the faith, it is paramount that we are walking in the faith for our message to be wise to not be contentious, and to carry with it the power of a testimony of life that moves people and compels people. And I'll close with this. So he contended for the faith. He was formidable in his writing and his clarity of mind around the key doctrinal issues of the day. He was a man of genuineness in his work and ministry among the people. But he was a man who had a genuine and deep love and affection for Christ. So this was not just some sort of intellectual or doctrinal or institutional or clerical matter for him. This was about his Savior, his Lord. Athanasius, in his own words, in his writing on incarnation of the Word, this is what he says about Christ. Quote, And in a word, the achievements of the Savior resulting from his becoming a man are of such kind and number that if one should wish to enumerate them, he may be compared to men who gaze at the expanse of the sea and wish to count its waves. For as one cannot take in the whole of the waves with his eyes, for those which are coming on baffle the sense of him that attempts it. So for him that would take in all the achievements of Christ in the body, it is impossible to take in the whole, even by reckoning them, as those which go beyond his thought are more than those he thinks he, can take in, he has taken in. Better is it then not to aim at speaking of the whole where one cannot do justice even to a part, but after mentioning one more, to leave the whole for you to marvel at. For all alike are marvelous, and wherever a man turns his glance, he may behold on that side the divinity of the word, and be struck with exceeding great awe. Devotional thoughts on Christ 
as God incarnate. He was awestruck with love and worship. Archibald Robertson, who edited Athanasius' works for the Nicene and post-Nicene Fathers, this seminal work on this period in, in history, he's an expert on Athanasius in his writings, has read he, wrote, he read and studied and researched Athanasius extensively. And here's his commentary on what he understood about Athanasius. He said, In the whole of our minute knowledge of his life, there is a total lack of self-interest. The glory of God and the welfare of the church absorbed him fully at all times. The emperors recognized him as a political force of the first order. But on no occasion does he yield to the temptation of using the arm of flesh. Almost unconscious of his, of his own power, his humility is the more real for never being conspicuously paraded. Courage, self-sacrifice, steadiness of purpose, versatility and resourcefulness, width of ready sympathy were all harmonized by deep reverence and the discipline of a single-minded lover of Christ. When we think about our own encounters in our day and time with people who are either advocating what we would deem aberrant doctrines or theology or something along those lines, we are called to do that passionately, compellingly, convincingly, consistently. We are to contend, but we're not to be contentious. We're to be characterized by this kind of humility this genuine, overt, obvious, sanctified life that manifests humility, grace, wisdom. And the power of that life and the clarity of those convictions come to, come to bear in that contending for the faith in the most compelling of ways. Well, we don't have time for discussion, so thanks for your time. I'll pray for us and we'll be